0: So, Jay, how does the Hellfire Club recruit its inner circle anyway?
1: Well, Miles, it really depends on who's in power at the time. Shinobi Shaw mostly seems to call in his obnoxious friends. His dad, on the other hand, was all about power and status, people who could either contribute to the club's resources or lend it legitimacy.
0: Ah, thus the extremely wealthy and the extremely mutated. Does anybody ever turn him down?
1: Rarely. There was one prospective member Sebastian Shaw chased for a pretty long time, albeit unsuccessfully.
0: What? Charles Xavier? Namor.
1: WHAT?! I'm Jay Ediden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 324 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera.
0: And as promised in our last episode, we are gradually working our way back toward adulthood. We covered the X-babies last time. This time we're going to talk about some teenagers and young adults, Generation X.
1: Right, and we should we should mention, I, I was thinking as I went through the cold open, we got a shout-out in The New Yorker recently. Yeah, what the hell? Welcome if you're coming from that, that's... surprising.
0: Yeah, we, we were not expecting that, but, um, that's cool, does that mean that we get to get drawn in, like, New Yorker style? Because that would be pretty rad.
1: I mean, we could probably hire someone to draw us in New Yorker style.
0: Hmm. Less appealing, but not unappealing.
1: We have myriad options. No, I, I do feel like this this means that we've got to get monocles or something, though.
0: That seems fine. And also, like, it could cause long-term vision problems.
1: Yeah, I would definitely need two.
0: Hmm, Those would be... bionicles? No, that's a kid's toy. Anyway, we're here to talk about comics.
1: We are, yes. So yeah, welcome if you're coming from there. Um, Welcome if you're not coming from there, too. We try to welcome everyone. We're happy
0: to not see you, but have you listen to us. So, Generation X. Before we dive into this storyline, in which kind of a lot happens, maybe we should talk a little bit about what the deal with Generation X is.
1: Well, uh, it's a a generation that came after the baby boomers and before the millennials.
0: No, no, no. Not those cynical fucks that we're very close to age-wise and many of our friends number within. I mean, the superhero
1: team. Okay, so Generation X is the current sort of youth squad of the X-Men, um, they're, they're like the new New Mutants.
0: Unlike the New Mutants, this team of young mutants isn't based out of Professor X's mansion. Instead, they go to the New Xavier School in Massachusetts, run by co-headmasters Sean Cassidy, formerly the X-Man Banshee, and Emma Frost, formerly the Hellfire Club's White Queen.
1: So, it actually is a little like the original New Mutants, who did go to that same school for a little while, but while it was still the Massachusetts Academy.
0: But that is more continuity than we need to worry about right now.
1: All right, so let's talk a little bit about the grown-ups with the team. You mentioned um, Banshee and the White Queen. So Banshee was was a member of the X Men, but before that, uh, Sean Cassidy was an Interpol agent,
0: and in between those times, he was an art thief.
1: That's so. That's such a better career. I don't know why. I've 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 been watching Lupin, so obviously I'm I'm. Well, and I watch Leverage, and I'm me, so I, I'm really just in it for the heists right now.
0: Legit, heists are awesome. One of my favorite parts of Thor the Dark World. Not Christopher Eccleston as Malekith the Accursed. So much wasted potential in that part.
1: Do you think the Dark Elves just spent their entire hi- hibernation braiding each other's hair? Like a big Dark Elf slumber party? I think so,
0: yeah. And, you know, watching John Hughes movies talking about boys, honestly, doesn't sound
1: so bad. I don't think I've ever watched a John Hughes movie at a slumber party.
0: Oh. I think I must have. Yeah, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. I've seen that one a few times at slumber parties. Huh. Well, anyway, as far as the kids on the team, we have quite a few. Let's list them off.
1: Alright, we have former member of the X-Men, the fireworks-generating Jubilation Lee, who goes by Jubilee.
0: We have Everett Thomas, the power-mimicking Sync
1: who can also use his powers in other amorphous ways. He is a product of the 90s everyone-has-amorphous-energy-powers trend. We've also got kid sister of one of the original New Mutants' cannonball, that's Paige Guthrie, aka Husk, who can tear off her skin to reveal any substance she wants underneath. We've got Angelo Espinoza, skin,
0: whose skin stays on, but is elongated and prehensile and gray.
1: Monet Saint M, who has tons of powers, and a confusing secret, and is generally perfect and also technically two people pretending to be one person right now, although they still haven't quite revealed that. They're building up to it.
0: Much simpler is Jonathan Starsmore, Chamber, who blew off the lower half of his face and the upper half of his chest, and I guess the front of his neck, the first time he used his psionic blast powers.
1: Ooh, puberty hits some people harder than others. I tell
0: ya, I was worried about the acne, but could've been worse.
1: Finally, we have Penance, a silent and mysterious red girl with razor-sharp skin who showed up literally on Generation X's doorstep one day.
0: Somebody who's been missing, who was very much present in the pre-release marketing materials for this comic, is the Samoan mutant Mondo. We've occasionally seen him in this book, but just for a page or two at a time, usually lounging on an island paradise beach with his friend Cordelia and not doing much else.
1: We saw more of Mondo in the Age of Apocalypse equivalent to this book, Generation Next, where he was a core member of the team, but he hasn't met up with Gen X in this and the main reality yet.
0: But he will, right now, in Generation X Annual 1995, the first story of which is called Of Leather and Lace.
1: Of course it is. This is written by Scott Lobdell and Jeff Loeb, penciled by Ashley Wood and Sean McManus, inked by Steve Lytle, Sean McManus, Bill Sinkiewicz, Vince Russell, Gary Chaloner, and Dan Panosian, colored by Dana Mooreshead and John Callis, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Dave Lanfear. Wow, that's a lot of inkers.
0: That is a lot of inkers. We see that a lot in this era, I don't know if it's just that books were really rushed or what. But it seldom is to the book's credit, even if all those inkers are excellent.
1: I am not a fan of it here. It's very, very, very inconsistent-looking in ways that, while they support the story to some extent, I think distract from it more than they add.
0: I would agree. And that's unfortunate, because unlike a lot of annuals of this era, This annual is actually critical to the ongoing Generation X story. If you missed this, you would have missed some really important stuff.
1: So, you mentioned Cordelia, the the young woman who's been hanging out with Mondo. That's Cordelia Frost. She's the younger sister of Emma Frost. And as we learned, she's 16, almost 17. And we open with 16-year-old Cordelia Frost trying her futile best to seduce her way into the Hellfire Club via Shinobi Shaw.
0: Oh boy. Okay, so... A few things here. Cordelia Frost, we don't know much about her at this point in X-Men continuity in the 90s, but in the surprisingly excellent Emma Frost miniseries from a number of years later, we learn that she's sort of the black sheep of the family, dresses in gothy clothing, wants nothing to do with their rich people bullshit, that sort of thing. As we find out here, she's kind of terrible.
1: And clearly wants something to do with at least some of their rich people bullshit, which I would say is the definition of the Hellfire Club
0: legit, legit. Speaking of rich people bullshit, I think one of the most bullshit-filled rich people in the Hellfire Club is, as you mentioned, Shinobi Shaw, the son of Sebastian Shaw. Listeners who have been paying any sort of attention to our show in the past may remember that we are positive that Shinobi Shaw killed his dad before they had the talk, and thus doesn't know what sex is and keeps trying to find out from the people around him without having to ask. And I gotta say, if these Bill Kevich inks, which I'm pretty sure he's the one who's inking this first scene, don't help Shinobi understand what the very definition of sexy is, then I don't think anything will. These inks are gorgeous. They're so Sinkevichy and beautiful and sketchy, and I love them.
1: So you're saying that Shinobi Shaw should want to fuck the specific... medium in which he is... occurring.
0: When the inks are that good? Yes. Yes, I am.
1: I feel like this is only gonna confuse him more.
0: Yeah, yeah, that may be true. But no, for real, like, the shinobi that's portrayed here, not only is the art gorgeous, but... this is a character I can take seriously and find really interesting. Like, he's a jerk, but he's a really effectively, entertainingly written
1: character. He's fun here, and he comes across very much as an adult whom a teenager is attempting unsuccessfully to seduce. Like, he's- he's got about the flat, like, seriously? Seriously? Thing going on. Um, to to his- to his dubious credit, uh, this could have gone much, much, much more uncomfortably. The dialogue is also kinda great because they just both completely missed the point throughout. So we've, we've got the two of them trying to discuss the, the situation as, as Shinobi makes his first point.
0: It would seem to me, Ms. Frost... Cordelia, please. Cordelia, that you managed to inherit your sister Emma's penchant for lingerie, yet none of her
1: class. could say the same thing about you and your father, Shinobi Shaw.
0: Perhaps... Except that neither my father nor I ever wore lingerie. I
1: I would like at this point to note my incredible restraint in not giving Cordelia a thick Boston accent. Yeah,
0: everybody forgets that the Frost should have hardcore Boston accents, even though Emma is always portrayed as uh, having a British accent, which I assume is just affected.
1: So I would assume that they actually have, have mid-Atlantic accents just based on what they would have grown up with culturally and socially, but I at some point someone suggested Emma Frost with a heavy Boston accent, and it never stops being funny, and it fits Cordelia's lines really well.
0: I just like to think of Emma talking in her fake British accent, but using the word wicked all the time. <laughs> so Cordelia has brought Shinobi a gift as her tribute that she's bringing forth in hopes of being able to join the inner circle of the Hellfire Club.
1: That's right, she's kidnapped her new best friend, Mondo, and stuck him in a stasis tube. Not cool, Cordelia. That's not how you friendship. No,
0: no, that's wrong in every way. Now, we last saw Mondo and Cordelia in Generation X number 8, in a very short scene in which Cordelia disappeared while diving and Mondo dove in after her. We don't know what happened between there and here, but I assume she somehow knocked him out or trapped him or used some kind of technology. I don't know. There's no explanation. The point is, she just gave a large naked man to Shinobi
1: Shaw. A large naked man in a tank full of what appears to be water. Which, I wonder I wonder if this is a callback to, Na- to the Namor stuff.
0: Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, she figures that uh, the Hellfire Club was unsuccessfully trying to recruit Namor, and therefore the way to get in is just to bring them random aquatic crap.
1: To bring them a naked man in water, yeah.
0: Legit.
1: Well, they don't have too
0: much time to ponder the Submariner connections or lack thereof, because a bunch of random dudes break in and try to steal Mondo.
1: So I want to talk about these guys because they're, um, they're a decoy, but they're the kind of decoy that makes me think that the story was originally intended to go in one direction, and then someone either forgot or retconned it. Because these guys appear to be from Team X. That's a group introduced in Wolverine a few years prior in his solo series.
0: Yeah, they're wearing skin-tight black outfits with unnecessarily complicated yellow accents, you know, pouches, harnesses, helmets, that sort of thing. They look almost identical to the way Wolverine and Maverick and Sabretooth looked during their own days in Team X, and the connections don't stop there because their boss is named Barrington. And Barrington was a character who was introduced in connection with Team X back in early X-Men Volume 2, Adjectiveless X-Men. He died there, but it's the Marvel Universe, whatever, death doesn't really matter. So, yeah, this seems super cut and dry as far as who these kidnappers are supposed to be, but we'll later find out that,
1: nah, nah,
0: it turns out Barrington was just an alias for Sean's brother, Black Tom Cassidy, and uh, the Team X outfits were just coincidental. Maybe they thought they looked cool. I mean, they do look
1: cool. Cordelia, left to her own devices, heads to the Xavier School for help, and Emma is reluctant, but she figures that Cordelia would only come to her if she absolutely had to, and of course, you know, there's the mutant life at stake, so she grudgingly agrees to to go along with this.
0: I do want to give some credit to our large collection of pencilers and inkers in the scenes in which Cordelia shows up. We get to see a number of members of Gen X, and whoever it is that draws Paige, Husk at this point, I love the way they draw her. Like, she legitimately looks like she could be related to Sam Guthrie, and you don't often see that.
1: Yeah, nice. That's that's always really impressive, when you can, you can see that kind of, like, family resemblance. In a medium where people aren't drawn all that consistently.
0: <laughs> exactly. Although, uh, ironically, Cordelia and Emma don't really look like each other at all at this point, but eh, what can you do?
1: But we know canonically that Emma's had a ton of cosmetic surgery.
0: Ah, true. Good point, good point. Uh, I also really like the way Chamber is drawn. Not even the art style, but just the fact that he has scars creeping up from under his scarf, from under where his face was blown off. That's a nice little touch.
1: Yeah, that's a really good detail, and it's one that occasionally is there. It's it's there when Bochalo draws him, usually. But, um, not anyone else all that consistently. So a side note about Emma and Cordelia, by the way. Cordelia may or may not be a mutant. It's really unclear. We know she's immune to Emma's powers. And we know that Emma told her that she should come to the school to learn more about herself, which implies that she's a mutant, but we never see any hint of her powers.
0: Uh, Yeah, never ever. As far as I know, every subsequent appearance of Cordelia, it's been ambiguous and unclear if she has powers and what they are.
1: Yeah, now we know that at least two of Emma's other siblings do.
0: Exactly, Christian and Adrian.
1: Right, so... Odds are good that Cordelia does, but what they are remains a mystery.
0: Being kind of a pain in the ass?
1: Yeah, I mean, that 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 pretty much scans. Now, Mondo, for his part, has escaped on his own. It is awfully hard to trap a metamorph, especially one who can turn into fluid when he's encased in it.
0: Oh, there are so many cool examples of his power. And what I really appreciate is that as he's doing all this over-the-top mutant stuff in the middle of a gunfight, like... He's so chill. He's so friendly and laid back and hapless, and I love him.
1: Yeah, Mondo is generally just a very kind, low-key person. And, or or at least this version of Mondo is, because what we're going to find out, once again, we we get kind of a massive retcon here. This is not actually Mondo. Actual Mondo was rescued from the Hellfire Club after Cordelia brought him this. That was real Mondo. He was rescued by Black Tom Cassidy, again, that's Banshee's cousin, and spirited away and replaced with a clone made out of plants.
0: X-Men. I mean, this isn't completely out of nowhere. We know that Black Tom has plant powers more and more these days after he was experimented on. But, but God damn it, Jake! can we just take a, a, a sec to talk about how much I hate this trope?
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Because we just
0: talked about it. We just talked about Joseph, who was portrayed as an aged-down version of Magneto, who was trying to get a new start. Nope! Turns out, he's a clone, he eventually goes evil, although not as early as we said in that last episode, we messed that part up. But still, here we have Mondo, we like him, he's wonderful! Nope! Turns out, he's a clone, sent to fight the team, what the hell, we won't even figure out the details of that for like, a five years of issues? A lot of years of issues. I'm thinking of Zorn in Grant Morrison's run. He's awesome. Nope, not a clone. But turns out he's a jerk in disguise. It just feels like such a punch to the gut of readers to make them really like a character and then have that character turn out to be a traitor in a way that the readers never could have predicted.
1: It's also obnoxious when it happens this frequently. Like, that's my main objection here is, is come on, really? Because I love, I love the idea of there being like a decoy plant person. I think that's awesome. But you know, if I it's sort of like fuck Mary Kill, but it's it's more like keep in continuity, discard completely. I would probably keep Plant Mondo, um, and 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 get rid of the other two.
0: Okay, that's that's legit. I, now I'm trying to think of how we would play that game with other characters. Oh, this gets complicated. That could be a whole episode on its own.
1: God, we should we should just do a whole episode of that.
0: <laughs> oh, jeez.
1: No, we shouldn't because I feel like I feel like fuck Mary Kill is fundamentally problematic, especially when you're talking about. Books with with, yeah. You know, well, but fictional characters in general, but fictional fictional minors. I am I am not down with that. Legit. All right. Now going onward. Let's see where were we before we were talking about playing fuck Mary kill. Ah uh, yes. So Mondo. In, in combination with Gen X, is able to stop the baddies, who teleport away, and Mondo, after reaffirming his friendship with Cordelia, decides to stay at the school. It's a little unclear to me whether he's aware that Cordelia is responsible for his abduction, because it kind of seems like it, but, but I, yeah, I'm just, I'm not sure.
0: I get the impression that he's not, that he figures, well, she's a friend, friends help each other out, I'm sure it's fine that he just doesn't really think too critically about things and that's certainly a personality trait that we see with him going forward so again i agree it's unclear but i would lean toward him just shrugging and figuring there are things in the world he doesn't fully understand
1: i mean he is he is made of plants so it it, it may be that that this that this fella is, is is not the brighter version of mondo
0: call any vegetable
1: So meanwhile, back at the school, while this- while this stuff was going on, Penance has collapsed, and she has ended up comatose. And Banshee, who's- who's the adult on site, calls Moira McTaggart for help, and they have a lot of feelings at each other. Now, Moira McTaggart, as you may recall, um, it's- I feel like we need to give character backgrounds every time they reappear right now, just because we're covering so many titles. Seriously. So, like, it's been, you know, six months or something. Um, Anyway, Maura McTaggart is, as far as anyone, including Marvel, knows at this point human. She is the first human to have contracted the legacy virus. She is Professor Xavier's ex. She and Banshee are technically exes, although kind of a little bit still involved at this point. And she is off in Scotland hanging out with Excalibur these days. And I really like their dynamic
0: here, because... This book does something I always appreciate in a comic, which is that it addresses the fact that characters haven't talked in a long time who probably should have talked. Banshee and Moira were together for quite a while, and ever since she went off to Muir Island and he st- stayed on in the U.S. doing X-Men stuff... The relationship has been strained, and here we find out that he just hasn't really known what to say since she contracted the virus. They each clearly have their own lives going on, their relationship has become strained in its absence, they still have feelings for each other. I like the ambiguity and the deafness with which it is conveyed here.
1: Yeah, I agree. That's something that I think we get pretty consistently in this book, is a sense of ongoing awareness that there are other stories, other characters, and other locations out there. That can be an issue in the X-Men line. It certainly propelled a lot of the late 80s. Um, And here, yeah, there are times when it definitely feels over-coordinated and overly complex, but it's nice having that sort of ongoing low-key acknowledgement.
0: Completely agree. So... It has now taken 10 issues to get a character who was supposed to be a founding member of Gen X, based on the marketing materials,
1: onto the team. What are your thoughts on that? A little weird. Definitely, definitely a little weird. I get the impression, I mean, we've talked about this before, but how planned Generation X feels really varies. And... It's also a title that really pretty much started throwing the team headfirst into a major event.
0: Yeah, I mean, they came right out of the Phalanx Covenant.
1: Well, they came out of the Phalanx, Phalanx Covenant, and after four issues it was Age of Apocalypse. Good point. So, we had the brief establishment of the team, and then months of this alternate universe, and the issues since then, to a great extent, have, have just kind of re-established the team. Given us a sense of their dynamics again, and also again, thrown them in and through other events and crossovers.
0: And into another dimension with creatures that may or may not have been leprechauns? No, we cannot go down that path. Okay, moving on.
1: Right, there was that. Yeah, that that really felt like Excalibur filler, but we, we covered that already. But I'm thinking specifically of the, the um, Mutant Massacre throwback stuff.
0: Oh, with Gene Nation you mean?
1: Yeah, exactly. So they were they were really kind of sucked into a lot of a lot of larger X-Line stuff and not counting the Schrodinger's Leprechauns, this is the first real chance they've had to kind of have their own branching off storyline. Agreed,
0: yeah. Um, it's kind of weird where it's gonna go from here, but, yeah, and, I, and that's part of why I like this annual. In some ways, it feels like it's one of the first Gen X stories that is just straight-up a Gen X story. Aside, yeah. I guess, from the story that introduced the book with uh, m Blade.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say, since the very beginning, the one thing that this is missing is Chris Pacello, and I gotta say, this this annual and this arc really, for me, cemented how much he's... The part of the voice of Generation X that I really love.
0: Completely agreed. And he will be back relatively soon in our coverage. And then, sadly, gone.
1: No. I just want him to draw everything. Or at least everything with this series. Uh, speaking of other stories that he does not draw, there is a backup story in the annual we're discussing. That is called The Very Personal and Private Journal of Monet Sanquats, written by Scott Lobdell, pencilled by Jeff Matsuda, inked by Vince Russell, colored by Rurik Tyler and Dana Mooreshead, lettered by John Babcock. So this has a little bit of framing of Angelo helping Monet move the girl's stuff to their new dorm, but it's mostly pages from Monet's diary. Monet's diary looks like a coloring book. It's got Crayon-colored in but fairly detailed drawings with little written captions at the bottom. And I really feel like I should be looking for hidden pictures and clues in it. And specifically, it feels to me very, very much like an artifact from a Silent Hill game or or maybe from, like, an old-school point-and-click um, adventure game.
0: Yeah, you're not wrong. No, I don't see Waldo in any of the pictures, but he might be there. But yeah, the framing story is interesting because it reminds me a lot— Actually, not of when Jubilee saw a page from M's diary in Gen X number 7, but from when Jubilee stumbled upon Jean Grey's diary in the X-Men wedding album, and read it even though she she knew she wasn't supposed to, we see Skin doing the same thing here. He knows he shouldn't intrude on M's privacy, but he, and we, do.
1: So, I was was thinking of how best to cover this, because it's really, it's these very simplistic drawings and captions, and I kind of just want to go through the text. Father is sad today. Again. Good. It is his fault, after all.
0: It rained today. Hard. Things to do? Get new governess. And this page uh, conveys the scene from the Phalanx Covenant, where a phalanx soldier kidnapped Monet after killing her governess. It's such a childlike version of that, with all of the kids shown as dolls in the pockets of the phalanx soldier.
1: Arrived at the school today. Naturally, everyone was glad to see me. It will take a while, but I know I can help them.
0: The biosphere is an interesting place. Mr. Cassidy seems quite proud of it. It would be rude of me to make improvements right away.
1: Skin and sink arrived. They are nice, but they lack maturity.
0: Naturally, since it's her school, Emma Frost is here too. I'm trying not to dislike her until I get to know her. I think she doesn't like me too much.
1: I was surprised that Mentor arrived today. It seems like it's been a long time. Everything seems longer now. I knew why he was here.
0: Mentor, of course, is the aboriginal teleporter Gateway, who's been an occasional member of this book's cast. At the airport, we met Chamber. I will try not to be scared, but he's scary looking. Plus, I feel sorry for him.
1: It would have been a good first day. Except for him. He almost ruined everything, like he probably always does. The him there in question is Emplate.
0: When we got home, we found somebody called Penance. She looked worse than I expected. I do love how many little clues are here. Like, Em talking about how Mplate probably always ruins everything, how Penance looked worse than she expected, it's clear that Em knows a lot more about what's going on than she lets on.
1: Yeah, and she figures out that that Skin has read her diary, but she isn't too concerned because she doesn't think that he's going to extrapolate her her secret from it.
0: Indeed, he does not. And that brings us to Generation X number 10, Death Whale. That's W-A-I-L, as opposed to, like, you know, a big undersea mammal.
1: So, I hate the title font for these stories so much. Did you find it incredibly hard to read? I didn't really think about it,
0: but I guess I think about fonts less than you do.
1: Not the ones on the front co- covers, but in the, the issue credits page where they've got the title, like, it's it's just a terrible font choice.
0: Hmm. Well, Richard Starkings and Comicraft do the lettering in this issue, so what the hell, Richard? You're normally great. Come on. This issue, speaking of credits, is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Tom Grummet, inked by Mark Buckingham, Al Milgram, Mark Pennington, and Jim Fern, colored by Steve Buccalato, and Electric Cran. I really like Tom Grumman as a fill-in artist. He did one of the leprechaun issues that we try not to think about too much. His art was great in that. We've seen him do fill-in work here and there. He's not as, I don't know, flashy an artist as somebody like Joe Matarrera, or Chris Picello for that matter, but his storytelling is super clear. His characters are very much on model, and I've gotten to the point where I really appreciate that in a fill-in artist.
1: Yeah, yeah. He's, he's fine. I mean, I, I don't like like you said, like he's not spectacular, but he's absolutely adequate to what he's doing here.
0: And adequate often sounds like damning with faint praise, but no, that is real praise. In this issue, following up from that annual, Mondo is having a formal orientation. And I really love this scene that we start with, where Skin and Husk are getting ready, and Skin has literally tied his fingers in knots attempting to tie a bow tie.
1: It's- it's just an ongoing motif in X-Men comics. No one can tie a bow tie.
0: Right, because before Scott and Jean's wedding, Xavier has to come in and help everybody with their bow ties. He's the only one that knows how. And apparently, Husk also does. Which I guess kinda makes sense. I mean, she's from a very large family and she's one of the older kids, so... okay.
1: But more than that, she's an overachiever who has obsessively studied the X-Men.
0: And this was before YouTube instructional videos.
1: Well but so she would know that being able to tie a bow tie is a skill that would make her stand out.
0: Ah, that's actually a legitimately excellent point. All right, that's canon. Let's go with it. Their friendship is really fun, though. Lots of gentle mocking between them like we've seen before. Him calling her a country mouse and insisting that he's the grand master of fly, sort of self-effacingly. And because they're that close, they really open up to each other. They're talking about what the future holds, and Skin admits that Hey, as soon as he can control his powers, he's getting the hell out of here. He doesn't want to become an X-Man like Paige does. Valid. There's a really nice touch as Husk lapses into her thick southern accent in surprise.
1: So the reception is in Proudstar Hall, and this is presumably named after John, because while there was a James Proudstar who attended the Massachusetts Academy, he is still alive.
0: Right. And, uh, I don't know, I mean, I guess you could, uh, name a hall after somebody, but usually they have to give you money for you to do that.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Mondo, the center of this party, is, uh, like we were saying, he is just a likable guy. He's got this tiny little party hat asymmetrically stuck to the top of his head. He's wearing a Hawaiian shirt, even though it's his formal gathering, welcoming everyone to his home. Like, Mondo is so freaking charismatic, and again, this makes me so mad that he'll just be revealed to be a traitor with almost no fanfare, die shortly after, and then the real one will show up years later and just be a different dude.
1: Yeah, it's really frustrating. He's a cool character, and he was one of my favorite of the team members in the Age of Apocalypse.
0: I, I agree, yeah. I remember he was one of our favorites there, and when he died in that story, it was legitimately wrenching.
1: Yeah. Now, Jubilee doesn't really care. She's not really interested in the cool new dude, because she is very, very upset about Penance.
0: She was there when Penance lapsed into her coma, and this makes sense. I mean... Jubilee was there when Ilyana Rasputin died, she had befriended Ilyana and then watched her slip away, and now the same thing kind of seems to be happening.
1: Yeah, that is that is a rough callback, and it's one I didn't think of immediately, but you're absolutely right.
0: That's something that I think um, this book handles very well, is having continuity of a character with Jubilee. Like, this very much feels like the same Jubilation Lee, who was an uncanny X-Men for years and years and years. Absolutely. Banshee hasn't showed up, though, which is weird, because he's usually a pretty responsible dude. So Monet flies away to check on him in his own little cabin, and he's dead? Although, I don't know, because we see that the fridge is open, we see that he's sort of uh, still and unresponsive with his eyes open and his mouth hanging open and stains on his shirt. I don't know, might have just been an excessive evening
1: snack attack. Sometimes I do that before I go to parties. I mean, the color of the stains implies that there may have been killer tomatoes involved.
0: Now isn't it a pity? Tomatoes eating Sean Cassidy. Monet telepathically calls out to Emma to get help, and that's a new one. We haven't seen Monet be telepathic before. We can add that on to super strength, we can add that on to flight. God damn it, Monet, what can not you do?
1: Uh, make coherent narrative sense for the for at least the time being.
0: Yeah, yeah, there is that. So it turns out Sean is not dead, it wasn't a snack attack. What's happened is that his astral form has been stolen. And Emma just jumps inside his brain immediately, telling the kids, okay, find the person who stole a soul.
1: Sir, I take issue with your claim that it was not a snack attack. It was absolutely and unquestionably a snack attack. He was just not the one doing the snacking. Oh, you're right, he was the snack. And
0: I mean, look at him, he's totally a snack.
1: So... Chamber explains to the other students what's happening, but God, his accent is very bad. It's- it's very unacceptable.
0: I mean, it's less an accent and more dialect, so I'm just gonna do the dialect. I'm gonna let the dialect speak for itself. She's acting as sort of a psionic anchor, holding Cassidy down, till we found the ruddy fish head what done this to him!
1: And when asked what would happen if he died while Emma was inside his mind... Chamber responds.
0: Not an issue, Governor. We'll find the blackguard. I do like the word blackguard because it means blackguard, which is a great name for a bad person, and is also the name for evil paladins in D and D. Also, the name of an extremely good band. Yeah, God, they really are. We saw them like a surprising number of times in Portland, given that they're Canadian.
1: We did. They, among other things, in addition to doing all of the things you'd expect a band to do very well, they have really entertaining sound checks.
0: They do. That's something I, that I feel like any metal band should strive for.
1: Yeah, but they they really really nail it. Um, no, no, I I can't I, I cannot swallow this accent from Chamber. And some of it is that the stuff that's spelled out is spelled out not phonetically. Like he's he's supposed to be calling Paige, you know, Gal or whatever, but it's spelled G E L, which is pronounced Gel. And. I, it's it's it especially too that we, you know we've got a lot of phonetically written British and Scottish accents going on in Exc- excalibur right now, which are written really well. Like this is this is just not landing for me.
0: You're not wrong. Yeah, this kind of seems like a British accent by way of Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins.
1: No. Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins did better than this, which is saying something.
0: Youch. Um, British listeners, we know you have opinions. Tell us what you think. Jubilee stays behind with Mondo to watch over the unconscious Sean, thus sidelining the exciting new character for this entire two-issue story arc.
1: Yeah, I don't know what the hell is up with that. Do you think Scott Lobdell just completely forgot that Mondo was supposed to be in the book? I mean, he
0: kills him off pretty soon, so maybe he just didn't like him.
1: That's a shame, because he's a really good character.
0: I know! I want to hang out with Mondo, but not be betrayed by him when it turns out he's a clone plant guy.
1: Oh, man, if I had a dollar for every friendship that had ended that way, I would be so broke. Well, in Banshee's
0: mind, Emma is hanging out in his memories, specifically in Paris in the 60s or 70s, and we see young Banshee even hotter if that's possible because he has this wonderful, like, sideburn-ponytail combo, he's got this vest and turtleneck, and he's in his full-on Interpol spy
1: stage. What he has is a really questionable mullet. Let's be fair, that's some Shatterstar hair happening.
0: I don't have any questions about that mullet, it's perfect, and you leave it alone.
1: I don't know, I just I feel like there are styles that Banshee has rocked better. That's the thing, like the the bar that they're 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 striving for as far as making Banshee look like sexy and cool is already fairly high. That is a
0: valid point. I'm just saying mullets are underrated, they can work really well. Dubious. Humph. Well, in this memory, Banshee has stumbled upon the latest victim of a serial killer he's been tracking, and he's caught by Inspector Magritte Devereaux. She wants to bring Banshee in because he's apparently about to create an international incident. Emma is quite put off by what a rebel Banshee is at this point in his past.
1: That little... All that crap he shovels onto me about being hot-headed and impetuous... He was worse than I'll ever be. Who knew the big lug had so much chutzpah?
0: I love Emma. I love Banshee. Overall, I love this book. Emma follows Banshee telepathically through his memories as he escapes on a train and meets up with a young Magneto. What the hell?
1: Magneto also has pretty sweet hair.
0: He often does. But yeah, in the past, apparently Magneto wanted Banshee to track down this serial killer. Apparently the serial killer was used as a weapon by human authorities, and Magneto figures, okay, given the impending genetic civil war that is obviously going to happen, we don't need any of this stuff. We need to just shut this stuff down. It kind of makes me wonder, though, did Magneto know about the Weapon X project? Because he would have had the same objections there.
1: And he could have handled it much, much more efficiently, considering its general use of adamantium.
0: True, true. But this is an unfortunate little taste of something that we don't ever see enough of. We've seen a whole bunch of Wolverine's mysterious past and Gambit's mysterious past, and we're getting hints of Banshees. He was specifically a secret agent in the 70s before becoming an art thief. Like, there's so much cool stuff to mine there. So many cool characters he could have had experiences with that uh, get linked together more than they should, the way Wolverine and Gambit's pasts do with other characters. And there's just never enough. It's my usual complaint with Banshee that he's a woefully underused character, given what a great character he is.
1: Wholeheartedly agree, and I say this as someone whose entire knowledge of Interpol comes from a combination of leverage on the current Carmen Sandiego cartoon. So, it may not be, like, the most realistic sense of what they do, but I mean, also it's a comic book, so obviously that's not gonna be either.
0: Well, we'll get back to Banshee's past in a bit once we know more about the killer in question, so let's go to Generation X number 11, Death Whale, part 2. Again, W-A-I-L. Although, a death whale would be pretty rad as well. It'd probably be an orca. You know, killer whale.
1: That is definitely the title of my new band.
0: Legit. Legit. This issue is plotted by Scott Lobdell, scripted by Scott Lobdell and Todd DeZago, penciled by Val Semeckis, inked by Al Milgram and Andy Lanning, colored by Electric Cran, and lettered by Richard Starkings, and Comicraft. Hey, Todd DeZago, he's done scripting duties for like a bunch of X-Men writers already.
1: Good job, Todd DeZago. Write us all the dialogue. As for the pencils, Val Semeckis has this
0: sort of more normal, I guess, comic book style, not as Gen X-y weird as we've seen before. Uh, at this point, Semeckis had mostly done a lot of Conan comics.
1: His Jubilee looks like White Jubilee from the Generation X TV pilot, and it's real weird.
0: You know, you are you're not wrong. But yeah, Jubilee and the other kids stumble upon the killer who has stolen Banshee's soul, It's Omega Red. Let's talk about Omega Red.
1: Must we? We must. All right, so Omega Red is a guy named Arkady Rasevich. And to very, very much, like, skim the surface, he's part of the USSR's rough equivalent to the Weapon X program. He's a mutant assassin cybernetically enhanced by his government employers to do worse stuff.
0: And his powers are, they cross the line from stupid into great, or possibly from great into stupid, I don't know. But his best power is that he has a mutant death factor. What's more evil than a mutant healing factor? Clearly a mutant death factor. These are death spores that he emits that poison those around him which is kind of rad. He's also got retractable carbonadium wrist tentacles. Carbonadium is like adamantium, but, you know, bendier. And he can use these tentacles to wrap people up and drain out their life force, which he has to do in order to live, because he's like an albino Russian energy death spore vampire.
1: I thought it was specifically so that the death spores don't kill him, because he's not immune to them.
0: Well, that's part of it, yeah. uh, The the energy has to, um, you know, keep him going because he's poisoning himself with his mutant death factor.
1: God, that's such a silly power.
0: I love it! I just love it! Anyway, Chamber's the only one that really gets to confront Omega Red, because that mutant death factor has almost killed all the other students. I assume this is because Chamber doesn't actually need to breathe, what with the lack of a breathing apparatus area.
1: No, it's because he gets thrown into the body of water there near, and so Archie doesn't doesn't really notice him when he's busy draining the other students. Chamber actually covers that because he specifically addresses the fact that he doesn't need to breathe underwater.
0: Okay, I thought Omega Red said something about throwing Chamber over there. I don't know, it might be an issue where the art was done and then the writer, or in this case, scriptor, had to sort of justify what was going on after the fact. Hard to say. But regardless chamber does send omega red packing because chamber's kind of like cyclops he usually holds his powers back a great deal given their vast destructive potential and he figures this guy a he can take it and b he's super evil
1: yeah and and he's correct on both counts
0: some nearby security guards named bill and simon are hanging out in a guard tower guarding i don't know something Complaining about their jobs, talking about retiring soon. Now, in a Chris Claremont comic, this would mean that they are toast. And it really looks like they're going to be, because Omega Red attacks them, wraps them up in his carbonadium tentacles, and starts draining their life force while narrating how this is all working. This is not a Claremont comic, though, so Chamber stops Omega Red in time, and the dudes get to live. Hooray! And in fact, Chamber thoroughly defeats Omega Red using his psionic blasts and also mockery. He calls Omega Red a loser, and Omega Red does not like that.
1: He's right, though. Omega Red is a loser. You freaking
0: loser, Omega Red. Don't suck our life forces out!
1: I just... I really... There there are villains I feel bad for when people mock them. I I really just kind of never feel bad for Omega Red.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Back at the ranch... Jubilee, like we said, is watching over Penance, and Mondo is watching over her, and I kind of want to go through this dialogue, because I think it sort of cuts to the core of aspects of both characters. Jubilee looks over at Mondo.
1: Can't you find anything to do besides staring at me?
0: You are staring at her.
1: That's different. I'm concerned about her.
0: Then there is no difference. I am concerned about you. You have to understand that everything is going to work out fine.
1: Spoken by someone like someone who's actually made of a bunch of vegetables.
0: That's not what you said in the comic at all. Say the real line.
1: Please, Mondo. You've been here all of two days. You don't know a thing about the technology that's barely keeping Penance alive. And we don't even know what's wrong with her in the first place. So, duh, how can you say she'll be fine?
0: Because she has a friend who cares for her. Very much. Where I come from... That's more important than technology.
1: Oh, yeah, well, when you put it like that, sure, she'll be okay. Manto is, well, I mean, he's right
0: that she'll be okay, because the character is indeed okay overall, but he's just sort of speaking from pure intention, and I get the impression that in his world and his experience, he has found that to be the case. Things are just fine. Or it could be the fact that he's actually just a plant clone. But I don't think it's that, because I think that's a retcon way later.
1: Yeah, you never know. So, in Banshee's mind and his memory, he's heading into Cassidy Keep, which is where Magneto has told him he can find the killer, and he's joined there by Inspector Devereaux, who has had a change of heart since they last talked, because the vi- the latest victim's body has been confiscated and records sealed by Interpol, so she knows that there's, there's a cover-up, the government's involved, and damn it, she's going to help Sean uncover the truth.
0: She hasn't just had a change of heart, she's had a change of outfit. She is now wearing a green mini-dress under her coordinated green hat and trench coat.
1: You know what? It was the 70s.
0: Exactly! It was the 70s. She's, I mean, okay, she's a cop, but she's close enough to being a spy. Let's just go with it. Everyone should just be stylish and sexy and impractical all the time.
1: God knows man she is.
0: Yeah... They do indeed find the killer, and it is indeed, as we've seen in the present day, Omega Red. But this is Arkady Rosevich before he was Omega Red. He's actually lured Sean there, he's left a trail of bodies so that Sean would find him and kill him. It kind of reminds me of Sabretooth leaving his victims to be found by the X-Men so they would kill him.
1: Yeah... I. Either way, their their targets are reluctant to give them what they want.
0: Yeah, Sean won't do it. He plays by the book, except for his decidedly non-regulation ponytail, although it was the
1: 70s. Well, in his flouting of direct orders to follow this particular case.
0: Okay, well, there's that. So Omega Red kills Devereaux, throws her right in the fridge, and Sean fires and fires and fires, eventually turning Arcady over to the government, where he will be passed along to the USSR, turned into Omega Red, and will kill a lot more people.
1: So, what you're saying is that this is All Banshee's fault.
0: Banshee certainly thinks so. I don't blame the guy, though. I mean, he didn't know that there was a secret Soviet super-soldier project to create horrible, evil assassin vampires.
1: I mean, he did kind of know that the government was trying to cover up for this guy, so he could probably have assumed that they weren't the best party to turn him over to.
0: Well, could have been worse. At least he didn't specifically turn Arkady over to Val Cooper.
1: Yeah, well, look, this is why he became an art thief. It's really less morally complex
0: legit. So it's at about this point of the flashback that Chamber defeats Omega Red, thus presumably freeing up Banshee's soul. It's unclear. But Banshee's alright, and they have a nice getting-back-together party, everybody's okay, complete with awkwardness between Chamber and Husk, who still have this mutual crush that they won't actually talk about. I feel like that's how you know that things are normal back in the Massachusetts Academy-turned-New-Xavier-School, Chamber and Husk are being awkward at each
1: other. I mean, to be fair, they're always awkward at each other, even when things are abnormal. I
0: suppose that's true. And that's our Omega Red story, and once again, we have a story of this era where the character stuff is way more interesting than the plot stuff.
1: We also get a little tag teasing, you know, what's going to be happening with with M-Plate, who is is the big bad of of this series. M-Plate, DOA, who's his butler, and Gail Edgerton are plotting and scheming about revenge on Chamber. They're spying on the Academy, and I love the way they're spying on the Academy. Yeah, what the
0: hell is going on here? There's like this giant head person with enormous ears who's yelling out the sounds and words from the party the kids are having back at the new Xavier school. Like, Chris Bocello may not be drawing this issue, but that is Bacello weird.
1: It's the worst baby monitor I've ever seen.
0: Ugh, seriously. And so there we go. We're back outside of Leprechaun Land with Generation X. We are getting closer to Chris Pacello's return as the main artist. M-Plates on his way back. I feel like this series is on its
1: way to where it needs to be. Except that, you know, there's going to be Onslaught pretty soon.
0: Don't, don't, don't remind me about Onslaught.
1: Anyway, we've got Onslaught to worry about, but you listeners have questions. Strawberries in June asks on Tumblr. Seems like two mutants will always have a mutant child. Are there any examples of two mutants having a human offspring? And on another more current related note, would that offspring be welcome on Krakoa?
0: So, Jay, the example you wrote down was actually the only one I could find of two mutant parents having a
1: non-mutant kid. Right, that is Graydon Creed and it, it seems profoundly unlikely that he would be welcome on Krakoa. But the thing is, I don't think that's because he's human
0: or because his dad was thrown into the don't-ever-think-about-him-again hole on Krakoa. I think it's just because he's an asshole. Because yes. we we do have a few examples of humans being allowed to be on Krakoa, not just briefly, but long-term. We have Northstar's husband, Kyle. We have Corsair, who's the dad of three to three-and-a-half mutants in the Marvel Universe. And we have Jubilee's adopted son, Shogo, who we... Have seen in the future, so we know is human, albeit encased in Iron Man armor. So yeah, I mean, if you're a human and you're a family member of an X Man or just a mutant in general, you can probably be in Krakoa. Just be less shitty than Graydon Creed.
1: That's a very low bar. It's true.
0: Banshee's got a high bar for attractiveness. Graydon Creed sets a low bar for being a valid human being. An ominous wait, an ominous listener.
1: Yeah, um, they specified that they were ominous, not anonymous.
0: Okay. An ominous listener asks via email, Is there a wiki or repository of all the Explain the X-Men canon from over the years? I'm thinking of things such as how Matsuo met Quanon playing skee-ball at a Christmas party, or how Cable is now Richter's dad by right
1: of arms. Oh man, I'd forgotten about those. I had to—I really love that they pulled out two two things that we had both completely forgotten we'd said. Um, There is an active listener-run wiki. As far as I know, it does not track podcast canon, but I imagine that that is something that could theoretically be added to it were someone inclined to do so, what with it being a wiki.
0: What do you say, listeners? Anybody have some free time? I would love to look at this to remember all of the funny things we said and then forgot about. Right? I definitely go there to check
1: what we've done cold opens about sometimes. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Legit.
1: (laughs) Um, And we should also say, this is where, where transcripts live, if that's something that you're ever looking for. We will stick a link to that wiki in the visual companion to this episode.
0: It's not just awesome wikis that our listeners create, they also help us create this podcast through their contributions. And certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Let us begin, as so often we do, with some words from the angry Claremontian narrator.
1: Oh, Brandon House. Look at you. So confident that your appeal to Robert Wolfe will be met with enthusiasm rather than the withering glare that I think we both know is significantly more likely. Yeah, then again, it's not like Robert has much going for him here either. You know what? Go for it. The worst that could happen is absolute humiliation followed by lingering death. And on that note, speaking of, of um, absolute hum- humiliation followed by lingering death, the mic goes to sexy Shinobi Shaw.
0: Oh, Marvin Gray, I didn't see you there. I was too busy updating my sex spreadsheet in Microsoft's Sex Cell. It does get so tiresome to document all of the different kinds of sex I've done with people. Naked sex, fancy sex, upside-down sex, all of the kinds. But what's this? You want to join the Hellfire Club's inner circle? And you've brought me the unconscious body of Daniel Rettig as tribute? Marvin, Marvin, you of all people should know that only the sexiest mutants can rule by my side. And you didn't even wear your sex pants to come see me. I'll grant that Daniel is very attractive and is probably quite good at doing sex, but how can I have a sensual grown-up nakey duel with someone who's not even awake? Am I to just take the word of you, an upstart, see what I did there, who can't even be bothered to wear sex pants to a meeting? Oh look, it's Team X, I mean Black Tom's agents apparently, and they wore their sex pants. Excuse me, my friends, but how would you describe how sex works?
1: I'm uh, practicing
0: my interviewing skills.
1: I I just realized something. Yeah. Sexy Shinobi Shaw is straight-up King Richard from Galavant. I gotta see Galavant! And with that... Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men is recorded in New Fairfield, Connecticut, in exile from Horace Hills, New York, and in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com.
0: New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at ExplainTheX-Men.com.
1: Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode.
0: Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com.
1: We'll be back next week with ghost pirates, shark fights, and the return of Lee Forrester. In the pages of X-Men Unlimited.
0: Do you want to be Chamber?
1: No, who would want to be Chamber? Do you want to say Chamber's lines? I don't.
0: Uh, Matt, Um, that might be good for a tag, I don't know.
1: (laughs) His accent is very bad. So...